When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 117 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. I'm alone for this intro. Adam is out of the office, which means I'm going to keep it as short and sweet as possible and not risk all that awkwardness that comes when I do these things by myself. Today is a special three-in-one author interview episode. Um, Adam and I recently got to moderate a panel discussion as part of the Fierce Reads book tour. We actually um, were the first stop here in Cleveland. Our friends at the Cuyahoga County Public Library were the first stop of the um, the Fierce Reads tour. And so we got to hang out with um, some really fantastic young adult authors. There was Scott Westerfeld, who has a new graphic novel, Spill Zone. Aaron Beatty, debut author of The Trader's Kiss, and Tehran Matharu, author of um, The Summoner series, which Adam has discussed at great length on the podcast, so that should be familiar to all of you. Kristen Orlando was supposed to have joined us, but unfortunately got ill, but you should read her book, You Don't Know My Name, and hopefully she was able to rejoin the tour for um, the couple of days after our event. So, yeah, it was a great panel discussion um, with all of the authors talking about their books and writing, opened it up to the audience like we always do at our live events at Cuyahoga County Public Library. I will warn you, though, that Erin had some issues with her microphone, unfortunately, um, that got corrected, but the first minute and a half to two minutes of, of her speaking is not the best sound quality, um, because of that. Um, but if you just keep going, she'll be fine. She, she, you hear her kind of get her new microphone and it's very obvious when she gets the new one. So if you are interested in any of these authors, their books, the tour, you can go to uh, www.fiercereads.com to find out more information and see if the tour is, um, coming to you. As always, you can email uh, Adam and I. It would be Adam and me, wouldn't it? It would. See? Awkward. Getting to that point. Um, you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You can tweet at us at probooknerds. I think that's everything I wanted to hit and only mildly awkward. So, all right. With that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <music> Good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Fierce Reads Tour. We're particularly thrilled because we are the launch event for the Fierce Reads Tour. We're the first stop on this amazing tour. Um, so I want to let you know that this tour is sponsored by the Macmillan Children's Publishing Group, one of our favorite and amazing partners. Um, if you are tweeting about this event today, please use hashtag Fierce Reads, and also be sure to follow Fierce Reads on Twitter 
Instagram, and Facebook. Visit FierceReads.com for more information about this season's featured titles. As I said, we're thrilled and honored to be hosting these incredible teen authors. With us tonight is Aaron Beatty, author of The Trader's Kiss, an action-packed debut that is Jane Austen with an espionage twist. We have Taran Matharu, author of Battle Mage, book three in the New York Times best-selling Summoner series. And of course, best-selling Scott Westerfield, author of the Ugly series, debuting his first graphic novel, Spill Zone. Regrettably, Kristen Orlando is not able to join us tonight. She is ill, but she sends her regrets, and we do have her book on sale over on the table if you're interested. So this evening is also special because it's being recorded for an upcoming episode of the hit podcast, Professional Book Nerds. And we have with us tonight hosts Adam Sokol and Jill Grunenwald from Overdrive. So without further ado, please give a loud welcome to the Fierce Reads Tour. Hi, everyone. How you guys doing? Loud. Okay, so if you've ever been to one of these before, we normally have one person that we're sitting and chatting with. Today we have three. So what we're going to do is we have a couple questions for each of you guys, so we really want to dig into your books a little bit, and then we'll kind of open it up and we've got some questions for each of you. So you're conveniently sitting in the order I was going to chat with you. So Uh-oh. Perfect. Well, look yeah, you Scott, you're advanced. up. Yeah, you. you're, down to the, you're down to the principal's <laughs> office first. So. Uh, Spill Zone is your first graphic novel that you've done solo by yourself, correct? Right. And of course, you've written several YA series as well. So first, can you give everyone just an introduction to the, the Spill Zone, and then take us through what it's like writing a graphic novel as opposed to writing a, a book? Right. Um, so Spill Zone is so in 1986. Um, there was a weird thing that happened in Brazil in a small city. Basically, there was an old radiotherapy institute where they used to zap people's tumors. So they had those old machines, like x-ray machines. And they shut it down, and they didn't take the machines out. And a couple years after the place was shut down, this scrapyard thief went in and stole one of the machines, dragged it out, sold it to a scrap dealer. And the scrap dealer started taking it apart and thinking, oh, good, like they sold it for like 30 bucks or something. And they found this strange glowing dust inside. Uh, what they didn't realize is that, of course, x-ray machines have radioactive stuff inside. This was cesium-137. And they started to say, cool, glowing dust is interesting and exciting. Let's let our kids play with it, and let's, um, <laughs> let's you know, show it to our neighbors. And, and it was this really sort of, and, and in the end, you know, 100,000 people had to be tested for radioactive poisoning. They had to destroy 30 houses. And this, just the idea of this entire city being kind of destroyed by this strange technology that they didn't understand that was visited on them from, you know, from basically another civilization. And, and, and that was such a, such a weird and incredible story. And I thought about like, what it would be like. And, and at that time, I was at, at college in Poughkeepsie, which was a town that was you know, kind of a hard scrabble, scrabble, rust belt town. And I thought, what well, you know, and, and there were a lot of abandoned buildings there from when it had been more of an industrial place. And I thought to myself, it would be really interesting if this town had something similar happen to it. So about 20 years later, I started writing this uh, novel about a town that's been destroyed. Something happens, and nobody knows what it is, an alien visitation or um, you know, Cthulhu spilling over from another world. There's, there's, no, there's no real explanation for the spill, but one night, this terrible thing happens. 
the laws of physics in Poughkeepsie changed, there'd be strange creatures left over, they've had to build a wall around it, and it's a story about this um, young woman who used to, who grew up there, and so she's lost her hometown and her family, and she sneaks in at night and takes photographs, trying to figure out what happens, but she also finds there's a market for these photographs, so she sells them as kind of weird outsider art. Um, so, so that's what it's about. Um, the, the weird thing about writing a graphic novel as opposed to a novel is how much, is how much, how many storytelling techniques you have to learn. Um, you have to make changes in scale and changes in color. Like we decided to, um, to make the colors inside the zone and outside the zone very different. So when we're in the sort of normal world that hasn't been affected this way, it's just like, it looks like a, a regular graphic novel. But when Addison sneaks inside to take her photographs, we suddenly get these crazy colors that are really strange and, and alarming. So it's, and it takes your eye, and sometimes they'll change from one room to the next, like she'll leave one room and go to another, and it'll go from all oranges and reds to all purples and greens, and your eye almost has to adjust like you're living under an alien sun. So like learning all that stuff and, and finding new visual storytelling techniques is, is a huge part of the process. Are you a graphic novel reader yourself prior to Crystal Zone? Yeah, no, I've read tons of, uh, I mean, I read comic books when I was growing up. I was a big Daredevil fan. Um, so I read superhero comics as a little kid and switched to sort of manga maybe 15, 20 years ago when a lot of other people did in the United States. And, um, and you know, now I'm reading Saga like everybody else and Monstrous. Um, there's one character in particular. There's not a ton of characters in this for obvious reasons. Dystopian, very you know, abandoned city. But there's one character in particular, uh, Vespertine. Is that how right, you? Right, that's correct. So for those of you guys who haven't read this yet, uh, Vespertine is a doll that Addison's younger sister Alexa has, and she basically speaks for the younger sister, more or less. And because it's a graphic novel, you get to see it, and it's incredibly, it's so creepy to look at. It's a perfect drawing. So first. Thank you for the nightmares. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, where did the idea come from for that that doll? Um, well, I wanted the Vespertine and her little, uh, sorry, Lexa, Addison's little sister, is one of the few people who came out of the spill, and I and I wanted it to be a mystery as how she escaped, mm -hmm. and um, so I, so I just decided she wouldn't be able to talk, but then I was like, I got a character who doesn't talk. That's kind of boring. So I thought, well, what if she's having a communication with her doll that she also took out of the spill? And, and I thought that would be really fun to, and that's partly why I wanted to do it as a graphic novel, because these communications are invisible to everyone else. And in a regular prose novel, it would be weird to sort of break point of view, mm -hmm. and then suddenly like show, you know, say, little known, little did Addison know that her little <laughs> sister was having a psychic communication with a doll. Like that would suck. But <laughs> in a graphic novel, you could just have that other layer of information. You can just put thought bubbles in the background and this whole other story is happening that the protagonist doesn't see, but you do. And you know, that, that's one of the cool things about graphic novels, you have all these channels of information. So the YA community is so special in that um, YA authors are always interacting with each other on social media and doing panels and events like this. Um, has there ever been a time where you have sort of been in disbelief with meeting another YA author or being on a panel like this where you're sort of fanboying? <laughs> Um, it, it's funny, but I go so far back in this world. I mean, it, in a weird way, like the, the people who, who I grew up with, I'm pretty old. Um, <laughs> the people who I grew up with, most of them are younger than me, right? The people who I grew up with are like Chris Crutcher or, you know, Christopher Pike. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, 
and Chris Crutcher is amazing. Like, if you've ever seen him speak, he is like one of the most astonishingly cool people, and then to meet him in real life is great. Um, I mean, I would guess if I met J.K. Rowling, that would be pretty intense, but I, I have not done so. Um, so on the other side of you know, being in this business for a while, Aaron, this uh, Trader's Kiss is actually your first novel, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, is today the release date of it? Yes, today it is out. Yay. Okay, so happy book birthday, first of all. Thank you. Um, okay, this is going to take a second to go through, so I apologize. Your background is amazing, not entirely literary. You were in the Navy with a degree in astronautics, which I can barely say, let alone describe, uh, and German as well, correct? My cat, I minored in German. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so two questions. One, can you give everyone an introduction to your book? And two, how do you go from being a German-speaking aerospace engineer in the Navy to becoming a writer? One of the things I did in the Navy was I was a leadership instructor. And while I was in there, we got into a lot of the personality theory. So we had to learn how to communicate to the different personalities of officers and then to teach them that so they could lead their, their sailors who, to reach them when they were not exactly able to reach so I learned a lot about personality theory, and um, that came into my brain. And right about the time that I was kind of binging on those Philippa Gregory novels, were about Tudor England. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I started wondering, I mean, back then, the marriages and divorces, it was all political, and it was all these unions and all these tearing apart, and it tore apart nations and tore apart families. And I started kind of wondering, is like, eHarmony uses that um, personality stuff? And I was like, well, what if you just had somebody who kind of did that Mm -hmm. and, and hooked it up together. And then I, then I started thinking, you know, women could secretly run the country that way because they would be the only ones who really knew what was going on. And, um, and it kind of just... You mean women as matchmakers. Women as matchmakers because right. they would create... They could destroy families by not allowing certain marriages or they could create huge unions. They could hold countries together. And in my book, they kind of are so politically savvy that they can see wars coming. So they're like, we need to, we need this union here because this army is going to be needed or whatever. Um, so I created a character who grew up in that kind of society where it was scandalous not to use a matchmaker, but her parents went outside the system. <laughs> now I use this? Anyway, so she, um, She's not into the system, but she her parents are dead, and she's left in the care of a relative who thinks it's a great honor to be married this way, and so she gets put into the system, and she fails spectacularly, And but the matchmaker offers her a job instead. And then they go on a basically a business trip with a bunch of brides to marry off, and they get involved in an espionage plot. And as for how... Um, I was never really a writer. I was always an engineer type, but my dad always insisted on writing clearly. So when I was in college, I wrote all the lab reports. <laughs> Engineers are horrible writers, but apparently I stood out. That's good. Um, your book is layered, and your characters cover a large number of locations and backgrounds. Do you think that comes from all the travel you've done? I think a little bit. I've always been fascinated with how geography affects history of nations in terms of you know where you how you can get places and, and what is limited by that. So that came into a lot of play, and I've seen a lot of um, cultures interact in strange ways. <laughs> uh, and do you think you put yourself in any of the characters that you've written? Um, I think because this was the first book I'd ever done, I think Sage kind of looked a lot like me at 17. And but she's not like me at all in personality. She's actually more like my sister. But actually, the weird thing is, I'm more like Captain Quinn than anybody else. 
I'm highly analytical. I don't take crap. <laughs> um, okay, so kind of moving on, Taryn, I, I kind of told you this a little bit when we were backstage, but I could talk for hours about how much I love your seminar series, and admittedly, I've been gushing to both my wife and my co-host, Jill, here for the past couple weeks. True story. Um, <laughs> the fantasy and the magical elements, they're just, they're so much fun. I think actually that was the word I tweeted. Um, can you give everyone a, a quick introduction to it? And then maybe where we're at currently in the with the third book, Battle Mage, having just recently come out. Cool. Uh, can everyone hear me? Is it is my thing working? Good. No, yeah. Says, it is. Okay. Yeah. It is working. Oh. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, the series might be described as a mix between Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Pokemon. Um, basically, I've always been a writer, uh, you know, growing up, but I always thought I'd end up going into business instead because that's what my family have always done. Uh, but then I wrote this book for fun and uh, I, I was working at Penguin Random House at the time as an intern and I'd been pestering my boss to let me show my work to an editor. And he was saying to me, no, 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 don't, don't worry, just put it on this website called Wattpad and I'm sure it will go do very well on there and you'll get a book deal. And I seriously doubt that he thought that was actually gonna happen. I think he, <laughs> I think he just wanted me to stop pestering him. Um, like literally no one has in the publishing industry has probably ever said that to anyone, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I wanted some encouragement while I was writing it, and I did National Novel Writing Month, which is where you write 50,000 words in one month, and um, I had some time to kill. So every day I'd put a chapter online, and I remember I started um, writing it, and uh, no one really read it to begin with. There was this one guy from Indonesia who was called like, Achilles 37 or something. And his English was terrible, but he'd leave a little, leave a little review on every chapter. And that, that was worth it for me. So I just kept going. And then it started going viral. And um, by the end of the month, it had been read 100,000 times. And then um, after uh, four months in total, it had been read a million times. And uh, now it's been read like seven and a half million times, I think. Uh, just the sample that I shared on there. Um, so I never put the whole book on Wattpad. And then um, you know one thing led to another, and I became a published author, and uh, now it's what I do for a living, and it's awesome. So, um, so yeah. So, I, did I answer your question? The whole thing. Yes and no. Where um, can for you kind of described a little bit of uh, what the series is about? Um, can you maybe tell people what they can expect in the third book if they've read the first two? This is a selfish question because I haven't gotten to read the third <laughs> one yet. All right. Well, um, so it's very difficult for me to talk about the third book That's without spoiling what happens at the end of the second very book, fair. as you can imagine. Um, but just to give you a brief overview of what the book series is about, other than Pokemon meets Harry Potter meets Lord of the Rings, <laughs> is um, it's about an orphan boy who uh, um, lives in a kind of fantasy world, and uh, he discovers that he has the ability to summon demons, um, and then he's chased from his village for a crime he didn't commit and uh, ends up going to a magical military academy where he learns how to control his powers so that he can become a battle mage in the war against the orcs. And the, the title of the third book kind of gives away a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, so that's what the story's about. And in the battle mage, you'll see uh, much bigger battles uh, on a grander scale and um, you know, kind of all of uh, the main character whose name is Fletcher. Um, you know, he kind of has to face all of his enemies at different times throughout the series. Uh, throughout the book, and uh, that kind of all comes to a head at the end of that. So that's the best way I can describe it without spoiling that's everything. That's very fair. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned yourself, sort of the, the Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Pokemon connections or um, comparability. 
did you sort of draw inspiration from those books, or you know, is that the type of book you read yourself? Yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of Pokemon, big fan of Harry Potter, big fan of Lord of the Rings. Really, the, the series is a combination of everything I love about fantasy. Um, so, and those three are kind of, if there was like a, a diagram of my favorite fantasy series, <laughs> those three would kind of be quite big. Um, so there are influences from there as well. But uh, ultimately, it's a combination of loads of fantasy books that I really like. Uh, I'm also a big history fan, so um, a lot of historical things um, inspired the series. Uh, you know, the time period, for example, um, in this world, there's muskets, which are kind of those old-timey. If you've seen um, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's kind of that time period where there are guns, but there's also sword fights, and there's cavalry charges, and cannons, and things like that. And that's because I love the kind of 17th century uh, time period uh, in terms of warfare and stuff. So uh, lots of that in there as well. Um, and then personal experiences as well. There's multiple fantasy races in the series, and um, I experienced a lot of racism when I was a child. And um, that kind of comes to a head in the series because you know, in a world where there's four different fantasy races, um, you know, there would be some kind of racial tensions there, and that kind of comes to a head in the series as well. Um, so my favorite part of the series, uh, your main character Fletcher has, a, it's a demon, but it's a salamander, and his name is Ignatius. I, I've spent, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've brought this character into with my wife, and she's <laughs> like, okay, you, you have a thing for a salamander, please stop this. Um, he reminds me of, like, Toothless from How to Train Your Dragon. Which I hear that a lot. Okay, that's, all right, well, I'm on the right lines. So, of all the demons you came up with for these books, and you come up with a lot, what made you choose that for Fletcher? And again, I don't know if I'm walking into a spoiler there for the third <laughs> book, so if I am, I apologize and you can yell at me. Um, yeah, so there's one kind of sub-reason mm -hmm. that does spoil things, so I want this. Um, but I mean, when I was a fan of Pokemon, Charmander was my, my favorite Pokemon. Okay, it was always my starter Pokemon when I played uh, Pokemon games. Uh, so I love Charmander. But also, you know, a, a salamander is effectively a small wingless dragon, which is awesome because you don't want your main character to have this super powerful demon that can destroy everything. And that what the case would be if it was a dragon. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like this cute kind of house cat size uh, demon that, that kind of uh, supports him and, and can be quite cute and cuddly, although um, Cresta Cow manages that very well with, uh, with Toothless as well. Mm -hmm. she, I've actually met Cresta Cow, that's my oh. famous author that I've met. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so, so that's kind of why I chose um, a salamander. But there are over 90 demons in my book series, um, all of which are kind of various mythical creatures from uh, different cultures. So for example, um, North American culture, there's the uh, kind of Native American Wendigo, mm -hmm. which is this kind of freaky creature that's in the forest and is kind of cannibalistic and likes eating corpses. Uh, that's one of the demons in the books, but also a lot of them are awesome demons like minotaurs and griffins and things like that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And I love that you put, um, at the end of the book, I believe, there's kind of like an appendix of all the, the yes. demons that are in the book. And I spent way too <laughs> much time looking through that, I'll be honest. So. I, have a, I have a whole demonology with illustrations that will hopefully come out someday. That's incredible. Um, which, is, which is great fun. It sketches of all the demons. I, I like books with maps and appendices. <laughs> yeah. Those are the best books. They are the best I books. found that's, that's a really big like YA fantasy thing. I, all the YA fantasy authors we've, we've discussed, a lot of them will say like, they actually start with a map. They'll, they'll work with, either they'll draw it themselves, which, man, now you guys have two skills that I don't have. This is, is a ready-made coloring book. <laughs> I <laughs> hope that? so. Yeah. Maybe I, someday. But that's just incredible to map out, and it helps so much to kind of give you a frame of reference to where everything. I wish, honestly, all books that had a journey. I wish they all had a map at the beginning, just kind of gives you that. <laughs> even, even if it was a realistic, like here's the United States, here's where you go from A to B. It kind of gives you that, you know, 
sense of the journey a little bit. They, they used to have something called Dell Mapback Mysteries. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were a set of mystery books that all had a map on the back, even if it was just like a map of a house. You know, like in a sealed room, kind of who got who murdered the person in the in the old English house. They would have a, a like you know a, a floor plan. So they, and they always had a map. I think I have Christie's. They would do that. This, yeah, the same kind of thing. So you could. Let's bring it back. I like. I, I'm all for I it. Well, sort of going off of that and the idea of starting with a map. I always like finding out what an author's writing process is like. So this is kind of all for the three of you to answer, but. Um, you know, do you start with an idea? Do you have it all sketched out? Do you kind of let the characters and the story guide you? So, whoever wants to jump first. I guess oh. uh, I, I can start. Um, so my first book, um, there's like two techniques that people talk about, which is uh, pantsing and plotting mm -hmm. or planning. Uh, so, and pantsing is when you fly by the seat of your pants as you write. Um, I started the novice pantsing and then slowly evolved into planning it. Um, mostly because I realized it had to have an end. <laughs> um, and, uh, but um, you know, the second and third book were planned a lot more, and my next two series have all been planned out kind of meticulously, not chapter by chapter. Um, I do something, I don't know how many um, prospective writers there are in the, in the room, but um, I do something that I like to call signposting, where there's a series of events that I know need to happen through the novel mm -hmm. to get from start to finish. And then I write in between those events, and that's as deep as I plan. I know there are some authors who have it so well planned that they can literally write the last chapter, and then a chapter 36, and then chapter 12, mm. just because they feel like writing those at the time, and then they write the rest. Mm. I, I literally could never do that, um, but I know that some, some do. Aaron, what about you? I, I do it a lot the way you, I compare it to a game of croquet, where you have all those little things that you have to go through, but what happens in between is totally can go way off course at some oh, point. That's a really good metaphor. I'm but, gonna do um, that. <laughs> but in my, pro in my process, <laughs> I usually I use post-it notes and I'll I'll like put out little things on the on a big easel pad and then I'll go and I'll write and then I'll come back and I'll change everything and I'll pull off post-its and add new ones and sometimes they'll end up in a long strip <laughs> hanging off each other because I because I can't stick in room and then if I have like side plots I put them on the side and then it helps me decide where that those points need to go in. And it's kind of interesting because it gets all rainbowy because I use different color post-its, <laughs> although I probably couldn't tell you which one was the first, second, or third. But I just do that over and over, write, go back, write, and go back until it's done. And then for you, you said you know, when we were talking backstage a little bit, you said the Trader's Kiss is, it, it was originally going, it was kind of sold as one book, and then you're going to see where it goes. So did you, you know, now there's, there's going to be a trilogy of them, did you have an idea while you were writing the first book of like, okay, this is going to be a singular story if it has to be, but I want to extend it, or did you always plan on it being a little bit longer? I kind of always had like the the overall arc kind of seemed like a trilogy, um, but I and I kind of had a, a vague endpoint in mind. And um, for the second book, while I was writing the first book, the second book I was like things I could see things setting up, and I could see some of the things that I wanted to happen in the second book. But after I sold the second book and the third book, and then I was like I should really plan the third one. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, you would have had to know a lot just to write the first one because there's so many families and so many interlocking pieces. I mean, it's, the book is about matchmaking. It's about people who have the knowledge of what everybody likes and what everyone's personalities and what all what every family needs to know. So, like putting that all together, you, your your matchmaker characters aren't going to seem clever unless you you know what you're doing. I don't think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it'll be like, oh, that was set up so perfectly. Of course I did that on purpose. <laughs> it is, I mean, it, it's, it's funny to extend your croquet metaphor. A, a lot of writing is like that, except 
it's also like croquet in that sometimes fate comes along, like that thing where you get to whack someone else's ball. And exactly. Like, and like that happens to you. But the good thing about writing as a croquet is that you also get to move the hoops around. Like yeah. you get to take that, or the wickets, or whatever they're called. You, you, you can take them out and sort of move them, and you can create a different shape and a different flow if you need to, which is what I, I mean, I, I'm a little bit like Taryn in that I, I'm, I pants for the first half of the book, and then I look at what I've got, you know, because the first half of a book, you can add characters, you can add incident, you can keep growing things out, but you have to eventually stop the growing and, and start paring things away and bring it home. And usually it's that moment where it's at the biggest and most chaotic that I stop for a couple of weeks and I outline what I've already got. So I outline backwards first and then I start to see the shape and then I outline forward and that helps me round out the book. If we keep this croquet metaphor going any longer, I, you've hit the, the amount of croquet that I know. So if you guys keep going past this, I'm just going to nod politely, but I'm like, yeah, croquet. The most I know is that it's an house and adventures in Wonderland. Um, so Scott, for you, with you know, the spill zone being a graphic novel, and there's obviously there's a lot, you know, it's fewer words, it's conservation of what you're actually saying because it's so visual, um, and the story is it, you can you can read it very quickly because it's a graphic novel. Did did you have do you have the whole scope planned out? I imagine this isn't something where you can fly by the seat of your pants for too long without being like, okay, I need to know how this arc Right. Completes. Well, for one thing, I have an artist. And like, I can't, so you can't do things, like in a novel, you could say, you know that character that's 15? Let's, what if they were 12? And you can do like a little search and replace and maybe, you know, visit some scenes. But an artist, if you did that, they would kill you. <laughs> like, because that would be a year's work that you just throw out. So there's, so like, you really have to kind of know what you are doing. There's there's much less flying by the seat of your pants in that sense. Right. And the other thing about that's curious about graphic novels is, like, say you want a big two-page spread that goes boom and show everything, and I love that. That's like my favorite thing in a graphic novel where you have like a bunch of panels, a bunch of panels, people talking, and you turn the page, and suddenly this two pages is singing to you and showing you like all this information, all this stuff. But in order for that to happen, you have to know that you're at the bottom of the bottom left or the bottom right hand corner of the last two page spread right. for it to go. So you sort of have to write novels in, you have to lay them out, you know, the graphic novels, you have to sort of lay them out and to know, so, so you sort of build them two pages at a time. Mm -hmm. So I'll be like, you know, the first chapter, you know, the, the, the first page over here has, is going to be kind of crowded, there's lots of conversation. Over here we'll have maybe just a couple panels because there's kind of an action thing happen. And so, I, you know, I, I build them two pages at a time. And that's a really different skill because prose, it doesn't, you don't even care. Right. And like a different edition, like you make one edit, it's all going to change. You don't care where it happens on the page. So you kind of have to visualize, well, like almost, you have to have, I'm assuming maybe conversations with artists kind of visualize right. what the panels will look like yeah. as you're writing. And when my artists make changes, which he does because, you know, I'm new at this and he's, he's very, he's a great story, storyteller. Uh, as well, his name is Alex Pouvelong, I should say, and quite often he'll add stuff because he thinks I've rushed the storytelling mm -hmm. a little bit, so he wants to pull back on the pace and show more of the zone, because he really loves drawing stuff in the zone. <laughs> He's really, like there was this one, he actually went to Poughkeepsie where this, where this takes place, and took lots of pictures, and there was this one bowling alley, and Alex is French, so he's like, this was like the most iconic American bowling alley ever, so I had to add it. And so he, there's this one beautiful like half-page spread of a bowling alley with the, the pins floating outside, mm -hmm. making this weird pattern. 
because the zone has a kind of personality and it plays with objects and things float around. And so, so he added, you know, he wanted to add that sort of half page, but to do that he had to add two pages. Mm -hmm. So that my six page scene had to become an eight page scene, so he had to, you know, find all these other great American iconic things <laughs> to take pictures of and to add in. So, so there's this weird thing where once you start pushing stuff around, the effects are sort of really, really big in a way that the novels just flow. So as we uh, was mentioned in the introduction, this is the first leg of the Fierce Reads tour, and we are very excited that you came to Cleveland. Um, we obviously can't ask questions about what it's been like on the road quite yet, but do you have anything that you're looking forward to while you're on tour? I have a, I, I've done a few announcements about it, and I have you know, readers scattered around the US, mm -hmm. and my books uh, are very popular in the US compared to the UK. But, um, smaller country as well so um, but they were kind of scattered around so they're always messaging me saying like hey when are you coming to like this obscure town in the middle of you know, <laughs> Arkansas or something I'm like I'm not I, I don't know um, so it, but what's been great is that a lot of them have responded saying like hey I'm actually like near there so I'm gonna come and introduce myself and I, I actually respond to every message I get from a fan so I've got to know some of these guys quite well mm -hmm. so it's gonna be super nice to, to meet a few of them and, and you know shake their hand and say thank you for the support mm -hmm. Aaron, how about you? I know this is kind of your first time. I've, I've gotten some of those um, support messages. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to meet this author. And I'm like, my book isn't even out. You haven't even read it. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that you like it. Um, but having been in the Navy, I have friends everywhere. That's a very So there's probably going to be somebody I know at each one of these things, I hope. That's amazing. <laughs> I, um, I, I actually just, I'm one of those people who really likes hanging out with other writers. Mm -hmm. It's always really fun to... You know, like I, I live in New York, but there's a lot of YA writers, and we do like a monthly drinks night in a secret bar where we all get together and just talk about writing. And so I'm kind of addicted to that, and I really love talking plotting and writing. And um, so, and it, but I've never met either of these guys, or or Kristen Orlando, or mm -hmm. our our fallen sick mm -hmm. comrade yeah. who will no doubt be well and, and join us soon. And and just meeting new writers and getting to like hang out and talk to them. But we all we, we all met each other like at five o'clock today, so that has not <laughs> happened yet. It okay, was more like like what was your plane ride like? I have met Kristen. She's delightful. Oh, good, excellent. <laughs> I, so uh, this is actually this is something that every time I, I get to speak with authors and sit down, whether it's here at the library or at events like the American Library Association or BEA in a couple of weeks at Book Expo America, this is my favorite thing is to ask them what they talk about when they're with other writers. Um, so you, you say you know you're in like a private bar and, and talking about obviously the craft of writing and things like that. Are there ever conversations that come up about um, almost like kind of bouncing ideas off of one another? Is there like an unspoken thing where it's like, all right, this is a conversation that we're going to have, and it's not going to become a race to talk about whatever you know to write about whatever we're talking about here. But is there kind of like an unspoken thing, or do you actually get ideas from these conversations from with authors? You know, I have never. It's it is something people like. People who have never written a book and who aren't, you know, part of publishing are always worried that someone's going to steal their idea, and and always think like, you know, I, should I, how do I, how do I get an agent because I have this great idea and I'll write my query letter and someone will steal it, and it's like every writer that you know has a queue of twenty ideas they want to do, um, they, you know, every writer will, will in fact die with half their books unwritten which is, again, I'm bringing the room down, like I did at the beginning. 
but, but it's true. Like we all have all these ideas that we'll never get around to, and we don't have time to steal anyone else's ideas. So when somebody, you know, when somebody's telling me their cool ideas, my if someone tells me a really cool idea, my first thought is, thank God I don't have to write that. If I'd gotten that idea, that would be another thing at the end of the line driving me crazy and haunting me on my deathbed that I never wrote. But at least you know Maureen Johnson will write it. So, well, and, and not only that, but um, I tend to believe that you know. Any, you can give, like all three of you could take an idea and you would all write a different book about that idea. Like for example, I, I, you know, anyone, like for example, you know, with Matchmakers, which is a, a big part in, in your book, Aaron, there have been stories about Matchmakers before. There will be stories about Matchmakers, you know, in the future, but the way that you take specific characteristics of people and the way that you've taken a story about matchmaking and then put espionage into it and things like that. So, you know, what is it, you know, to you that, what do you think, makes a story special? Is there something that goes into writing it that makes it stand apart? Um, well, I think everybody is the sum of every experience that they've had. So everybody's going to have something that's important to them, an emphasis that they want to make consciously or unconsciously. And um, one of the things that's heavy in my book is there's military stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are like, I have no idea what anything about the military, but when I read your book, it was very easy to understand. And I was like, but they were like, I never could have done that. So that was something that I could do that probably you can't, but that's I'm sure you could do something else. With but it, it. but it's not but it's not something you think of that probably anybody else would have put into a, a novel about matchmaking. Right. Like, and it's com sometimes it's completely unconscious. It's just like you know what it, to us what is the next natural event to occur, or what would be more most interesting to us, and what's interesting to us isn't necessarily interesting to somebody else. But then if you're just reading it, well, right. go with it. But you were coming to the idea of matchmaking having learned about like personality stuff in the military. So like you're coming to it from a very different place than the average person who's thinking, I'll write a book about a matchmaker. Mm. You act like I did this on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> There's a saying that um, ideas are cheap, execution is all. And I think that's, uh, that's quite relevant here. Yeah. And um, you know, it's, uh, people can say that someone copied their idea, but you, it's very difficult to sum up a book in a sentence and then someone else copying it and coming out with the same thing. Like for example, you could say, uh, you know, there's a, a father who's um, lost his child and goes on a journey to find them. That could be Finding Nemo or Taken. You know, like it's, it's wow. You, know, you could you could say the plot of Harry Potter and Star Wars, and it would sound identical. You know, it's about like an orphan boy who's raised by his aunt and uncle, and a bearded kind of man comes and takes him away, and he finds out that he's very good at the same thing that his father was very good at. Which in Harry Potter is flying, but in uh, in uh, you know the Force and things in Star Wars, uh, and there's a Dark Lord who's taking over everything. So you know there's, but they're obviously two completely different stories. So you know Chewbacca and Hagrid. I'm just <laughs> now I'm just doing this whole thing in my mind. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, you know people can say oh they've stolen my idea, but I think it's very you know stories are very different mm -hmm. and writers are very different and. I just don't think it's ever something to worry about. And because I write on Wattpad, um, I get so many people messaging me saying, hey, like I'm worried that someone's going to steal my idea. And I'm like, just don't worry about mm -hmm. it because it's very rarely happens. At the most, they might copy and paste your story and try and, but they can't copy and paste on Wattpad, so they'd have to type it all out. And then you get it taken down like within an hour, and mm -hmm. then it's a waste of their time. Yeah. Well, just sort of bringing it back to sort of the croquet you have oh, no. no, but I mean, it's, I'm it's great. I had to. I had to. I, no, we're all stealing that idea. Though. <laughs> but like, I mean, the idea that you all like, there's a start point. There's the different markers you have to get to. But you all would take a different 
route to get there. Yeah. As long as you, you know, so yeah, each story would be yeah. different. Yeah, and some people and some people play the, the, the sort of free-flowing croquet game where you just go for the troops, and then some people play the gnarly little game <laughs> where you just torture everybody else and come up and hit their balls and knock them out of the way and well, leave, leave a wreckage behind you. Incredible. <laughs> I'm just blown away by how much everyone knows about croquet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are sitting, I mean, I think it's interesting you're all kind of in a different place in your writing careers. We have very established writers, brand new writers, sort of up and coming, what would be one piece of writing advice that you would offer any of the aspiring writers possibly in the audience tonight? Or one sitting on stage with you. Or one sitting on stage with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would go for one just for writers um, in general, is um, when you're reading a book that you've really enjoyed, um, also try and analyze it a little bit. Try and work out why did I like this character so much? How did the author transition from week to week month to month, let's say you're reading Harry Potter, it's actually quite impressive how J.K. Rowling does a whole school year in, in a single book, at least in the earlier books when they get quite, quite longer. But, um, you know, and that's something that's difficult to learn, but if you read books that you enjoy and you start to learn about how they do it, um, that's a, I think that's an important thing that um, aspiring authors need to do. The, the thing that made my writing better than improved it most was to critique other people's work, because then I was able to see the mistakes that other people were making and I saw, oh, I do that too. My, um, I mean, obviously there's the, the basic advice of read as much as you can and write as much as you can. And remember to read stuff that you don't like necessarily, not, not the stuff that pushes your buttons and that automatically you will enjoy whether it's good or not, but the stuff that maybe, you know, that you bounce off a little bit because you can see the machinery easier in, a, in something that's not just, you know, just like, oh my god, it has elves. And like, <laughs> like, 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 when you're reading the stuff you really want to read, you don't see the machinery because you're just sucked in. But when you read stuff that you, it's kind of like is, you're banging your head against, mm -hmm. sometimes that it's easier to see what's going on. And my other, my other piece of advice, which I always say, is finish everything. Like, as a writer, it's so easy to say, no, this idea is not as good as I thought it was. I'm running out of steam. It's not, much, it's not fun anymore, so I'll stop. And the problem with that is that you know, maybe that wasn't the best idea ever, and maybe that isn't going to be your great breakout novel. But when you do get that big idea that's going to be amazing, you don't want to have started 40 books, gotten to the middle of 10 books, and ended no books. Because then when you get your great idea, you will write a book with a great beginning, a pretty good middle, and a terrible ending. <laughs> and we've all read that novel, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it got published. All, it gets published all the time because someone comes out and they write what seems to be an amazing beginning and, 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 and yet it, at the end you're like, the, the work experience kid took over at the end? Yeah. And it's because that person has, has written many beginnings and hasn't written any endings. So it, finishing things is its own skill and its own habit and its own war so so get good at that too and a finished book is worth infinitely more than an unfinished book as well as a learning experience yeah and even even if you never publish it well we have a bunch more questions but i, I want to ask if there's any questions in the audience if you guys want to like, kind of raise your hand if you have anything by all means you can kind of see yeah go ahead over here <laughs> yes. 
I have wished that I could make a change. Um, but, but as often as that happens, it's, I think it's more often that I'm like kind of amazed at something I did do that like does pay off unexpectedly. So I think what you do is you get, like with, with, with any kind of writing, I'm, I'm lazy enough that I don't want to go back even within one book and change stuff when I get a great idea. So I've become better at just playing with the tools that I've given myself. And also knowing that if you give yourself enough cool stuff, eventually it'll pay off. Just start throwing balls in the air and make yourself catch them. Um, I've had, so I'm, I'm writing a prequel, um, so that's a, which is set in a time before uh, the first three books. And um, obviously I can't you know, do some crazy thing that, uh, that I didn't mention in book one. You know, if, the, if, the, if there was like a, I don't know, a massive explosion in the center of the empire or something, that would have been mentioned in book one. So um, when I was writing, when I'm, I've been writing this prequel, uh, I've had to kind of go through book one and look for things that I've mentioned from the history that I can include. And that's been great fun, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I really want to do this super cool thing, but they would have mentioned it in book one mm -hmm. if it had happened, so I can't do it. So that's been my one frustration, but um, I've managed to make it work quite well. But uh, every now and again, I've had an idea, and I'll be like, never mind, I'll use it in another book. Aaron, I know that you're working on book two at the moment, so are, are there things that you're writing down like oh I wish I would have done kind of something else in book one for that not yet <laughs> <laughs> but I can see it coming <laughs> yeah I think there's another question back there yeah go ahead sir so for everyone who couldn't answer the question why, why did you guys start writing young adult with all the different options that you could have had out there because grown-ups are boring <laughs> <laughs> And I know because I am one. <laughs> it's what I enjoy reading uh, the most. Um, so my writing kind of generally took that direction. I think that's the main reason. I mean, I did write adult books when I got started in the 90s, writing books. And, uh, and then I wrote my first YA book kind of by accident. I just had the idea for The Midnighters. And the idea of staying up till midnight when you're 27 didn't seem that cool. <laughs> so... I'm, you know, I thought it'd be better to write it about teenagers, and and then like the the audience itself sort of convinced me to stay there. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I've been at things like this where you have a lot of teenagers and a lot of adults, and they and they're kind of self segregated, so you can do quick polls, and I'm and I'll ask things and I'll ask a bunch of questions about language, like how many of you are studying a foreign language, and all the teenagers are, and none of the adults are, and how many of you have, you know. Memorized the, the lyrics to a hundred songs. How many of you have written poetry lately? How many of you have created slang in the last month? How many of you call your friends nicknames? And and all the teenagers and a few adult science fiction fans raise their hands. <laughs> yes, for all those, and all the regular normal adults don't. And and so to have an audience with that, with that amount of you know, with with that plasticity of language and acquiring and generating new meaning and new interesting words in the world and memorizing poetry, they're just cooler. They're just mm -hmm. great to write for. For the record, staying up to midnight now is, you know, that sounds impossible to me. So I, <laughs> I totally agree. It, it's, it was so cool as a, you know, as a teenager, and now I'm just like, oh, but the alarm goes off so early. Why would I want to do that now? Uh, other questions out there? Okay, just want to make sure. Uh, something that I'm always curious oh, about. Wait, wait there oh. were. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Action. Definitely action. I would go with action too because it's like I get to play with all the toys that I set up. <laughs> yes. But no, I hate writing romance scenes. 
<laughs> the whole time I'm like, my husband is going to read this. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, did, did you have one? Was there someone back there? Sorry. All right, well, if you guys have a question, feel free to raise your hand. We'll, we'll keep chatting. But um, something that I'm always curious about. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, sir. I would like to start with this one. I was going to say, you're going through this. As so uh, I can remember sometimes during the revisions of the first book that the editors would tell me things like, oh, we think you should do this, we should change this. And I'd be like, that's the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> and I would sit there and I'd be like, fine, I'll write it that way just to prove you wrong. <laughs> and then I would do it and I would literally bang my head on the wall sometimes. I was so frustrated. And then when it was done, I looked at it and they were right. It was so much better. <laughs> so now I, it's so much easier to take their advice. I find it harder to cut stuff. Uh, my third book was um, not that much longer, but it was longer than the other books. And um, my editors wanted me to cut it down. And it was brutal. I'd written this scene that I really liked, and um, but it didn't add to the story. It didn't add to the plot. It was just cool. And they were like, well, we need to get this word count down. So this scene doesn't have anything in it that kind of like would affect the later chapters if we cut it. So let's cut it. And I was like, no. But um, it's a deleted scene that I can share later down the line with people, so it's still there on the hard drive, mm -hmm. but it's not in the book. Um, so that, and that was really tough to do, but ultimately, it probably made the book better and like a little more fast-paced. So, fine. with Spillzone, you know, it being my first graphic novel, I remember the the moment when I realized something that should have been obvious, which is that every word I write actually covers up some art. Like those little bubbles where dialogue and you know and narration and thoughts are, they actually take up space, <laughs> and and it you know you can see the difference when you when you write something that's too crowded. You're like, there's no art left. There's just like a person hiding among all of their dialogue, and like you know you can sort of see them being crowded out. And like once I saw like the the frame with too much dialogue, it was such a great cautionary tale. It's suddenly mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm glad I have a character who doesn't talk. I'm going to make all my characters much more taciturn, <laughs> and they're just going to be like, yep, all right. Was it like writing on Twitter? What was that? Is it like writing a book with Twitter? It, it does feel very much like Twitter, like because in that, in that honing it down and just trying to just get it as sharp and punchy and clear as possible, or Twitter or a haiku or something like that. Do you think that, I'm, I'm wondering if, if going through that experience, do you think you'll take that going forward? To writing prose again? Yeah, I mean that's really interesting to me because like one of the other things that changes all the time that, that I do in when I'm writing graphic novels or Leviathan, my illustrated books, is I realized I would make, I would change like the number of people in a scene. Like if you have three scenes in a row with two people, it looks really dull. But so like if I so if I have a scene with two people, the next scene I want like seven people, and then go back, and then go just to one person, and then. So that the, the thing sort of breathes. And if I have a scene set in a small room, I'm like, well, the next scene is going to be set on the roof. Even if it's the same two people talking, I'm going to get them on the roof somehow so we can have some vistas. And so I think like doing that in prose also makes things breathe. It's just harder to see. Right. You know, like you're not as aware of it, but I think the reader does feel it when you make those changes in scale and even changes in light and changes in comedy versus sadness or you know, all that stuff, uh, all that stuff, variation is the spice of life. Any question up here? Okay. 
Feels like it might be for Scott. Um, so, so you know that feeling when you get to the end of a book, and it ends a little unexpectedly early because there's like four or five blank pages in the back, and you're like, ah! And there's just that moment like you're punched, like all those people went to a party without you. <laughs> that feeling happens when you're writing too, except it's much worse because you know you read a book in a week or two, but you write a book, it takes a year. And when I get to that last page, and I really type it for, I'm. I'm really happy for like 10 minutes, but then I'm like, well, those people are gone now. So, so really, my favorite book is always my most recent one. Just, just as I'm sure your parents love your younger siblings more than you. <laughs> I'm the youngest, so I hope so. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so you were going to say? I know, it just made me think of that line from The Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya is like, I've been in the revenge business for all my life. What do I do now? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'll take up piracy. Oh. <laughs> Um, so at the end of our podcast episodes, we do what we call the Nerd Nine because we like alliteration. Uh, they're supposed to be nine rapid-fire questions. A, they never are, and B, there's three of you which you've never done before, so I'm going to see how this works. Uh, these are very, these are easy questions, I promise. Uh, so we'll start with Taryn, we'll kind of go this way. So the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? Um, oh my god. Uh, I, I really like... Um, uh, the Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwell. I'm working my way through that series. I'm at book four, and I think it's called The Burning Land. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. It's uh, set in Viking Age Britain. Mm -hmm. so, uh, that was a really long answer for no, a that's okay. That's <laughs> This is how this works. I have no idea, but I think it was Spill Zone. Oh, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last one, it was a graphic novel um, called Lucky Penny. Uh, Taryn, what's your favorite place to read? Um, a train, generally. Aaron? On the couch. Yes. In bed. <laughs> right, we're going to go back reverse order just to keep it fair. Uh, <laughs> Scott, guilty pleasure? <laughs> like mine, I'll, I'll keep it clean. Mine and Joe can attest to this. I post pictures of my dogs on Instagram, like an obsessive amount, like a frustratingly annoying amount of pictures of my dogs. Watching many episodes of Black Sails in a row. So good. My, oh, that's a perfect dude. <laughs> Sorry. The, the guiltiest of guilty pleasures. Probably Starbucks. Yeah. Playing way too many video games when I should be writing. <laughs> uh, it's all research. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that works. You, you can do that. Uh, Scott, what's one place that you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Antarctica. Ooh. Aaron, that'd be cool. Probably Australia. Okay. Ooh. Uh, I'm spending four months in South America this year. Um, part of this like work travel thing I'm doing. Um, I've never been to Chile, um, Argentina, um, or Peru. So I'm doing all those three, and those three are places I really wanted to go to. Yes. Uh, Taryn, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Um, holiday. Sorry, uh, like US, like um, Christmas, Easter, oh, right. um, New Year's. Yeah, I'd say Christmas is probably my favorite. Yeah. Easter. Uh, Halloween. I guess. Felt sure you were gonna say Halloween. <laughs> uh, Scott, coffee or tea? Coffee. Yes. Tea. That makes sense. All right, this is the big <laughs> one, British. This is the big one, guys. Uh, Taryn, cats or dogs? Uh, dogs. Yeah. Cats. Cats. Oh yes! man. Okay. So this is a. Th none of you guys know this. I'm a dog person. Well, you know that. You know that now because the Instagram thing. 
Jill is a, a cat person, and this is like our eternal struggle, so you just made her day and ruined mine, but that's okay. Um, it was close. <laughs> yeah, two to one. That's okay. I still lose. Uh, <laughs> Scott, favorite food? Uh, I already said coffee, so. <laughs> that's actually what I, I would okay. say. Coffee, too. <laughs> coffee with stuff in it <laughs> that makes it more food-like. There you go. Aaron? I like dark chocolate. Sure. Sushi. Right. And then the last one, Taryn. If you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Oh my god. Uh, probably Julius Caesar. Nice. Aaron? I would go with um, the grandfather that I never met. Yeah. Ada Byron. Ooh, that's really fantastic. Well, uh, are there any other questions out there in the audience? Yeah, right in the middle here. That's really good question. That's great. How do you go? How do you keep from putting too much detail on a scene? That's really good. I imagine that would, an editor would help with that part. Well, I usually have to beef things up because I can see it in my mind, but I don't put it on the paper at least first time. But you can go back through and you can add in what's important. But I did have one of my readers say, you know, I really wish that you would describe the dresses more and the stabbing less. <laughs> <laughs> I go with what I know. <laughs> read it out loud is another thing you can do. Because when you read it out loud, and it, because when you read, it's really fast. But when you read out loud, stuff that's boring or takes too long, takes too long. I think the, the, the pacing of the scene that you're writing as well is important. If you're writing an action scene, then you know if you start describing the glint of the sun of the sword blade and spend three, three paragraphs describing that, then obviously you're doing too much. Um, but uh, so the pacing is important, but I also think it's an instinct that you learn um, the more you read and the more you write, and it's um, it's just like anything in writing, it's it's practice, um, analyzing and um, and execution over and over again. So um, I think that's uh, that's what I'd say. If you guys have any other questions for our authors here, I believe they're going to be here for a while doing some signing and everything. But thank you guys so much for joining us today, Scott, Aaron, Taryn. Thank you guys so much as well for coming to uh, to Parma. We appreciate it. Thank you. For thank, you. thank you guys. Thanks. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.